Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 78. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach, and this is attempt number eight at this episode. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, We've yeah. we tried I, hard. I feel like we could probably recite this one in our sleep at this point, which is good because I kind of just want to get it over with. Yeah, I asked if I could have my notes on hand, but uh, I don't even know why it's not needed. (laughs) We've recorded this literally four different times, right? Four full full episodes, I'd say. At least eight attempts. I'm not sure how many times we actually went through it fully. So I guess we should probably explain to the audience how we got into this situation. I've been trying to sort out just the right setup for remote recording. Matt and I always record together in person. And because of that, it's generally pretty easy to get the audio at a good quality level once you get everything kind of working together. But this time around, we've decided we really want to master how to do this stuff remotely. And I thought, well, can't be that hard, right? Every podcast caster in the world does these remote interviews, but trying to get good audio quality when you're doing it remotely turns out to be shockingly hard. So we have tried basically every program under the sun that does remote recording. And I think we finally found one that does audio quality at a level acceptable enough to the point where it'll probably sound like we're in the same room. And if this doesn't work, I think I'm going to just kill myself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that'd be the end of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So mainly because you don't know how to publish them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Can you show me and then and then kill yourself? Yeah, I'll I'll put it in my will just to make it clear to everyone. So the topic, ironically, that we want to do is motivation. Um, we received several emails from listeners discussing challenges with motivation, probably stemming primarily from the fact that everyone's just been off the mats for so long due to quarantine. And of course, everyone's life situation is different, right? For some people, jujitsu is a full-time job. For other people, jujitsu is a hobby. And if it's a hobby, and especially a hobby that you haven't been doing for very long, taking off those two months or however long it was can feel like a long time. And especially given concerns about the virus, a lot of people are, I think, a little bit reticent to jump back in. And even for the people who are ready to jump back in, I've heard a lot of people say that they're just having trouble getting their headspace back into the place where they want to do jujitsu, especially after such a long time off. So what we thought we would talk about is how you can motivate yourself. Now, the timing is good because Matt had just recently drafted up and sent off an email to our newsletter about his sources of motivation. And we thought, well, we're lazy. So probably the easiest thing to do is just to reuse (laughs) that word from word. (laughs) Exactly. Just reuse the exact same script and just do it all over again. So maybe we can get going and start on the first two topics that you wanted to cover in terms of motivation. Yeah. So I was just thinking about, uh, you know, getting back to the gym after this whole COVID thing and thinking about, uh, you know, pe- feeling pretty unmotivated lying on the couch and I am doing some writing and some studying and things like that. But for the most part, uh, I've kind of completely gotten out of the groove after about three months of not regular training, uh, or sorry, I, I have been training, but not regular jujitsu rolling training. And, um, yeah, just thinking, um, how, how could I get motivated again to like, let's say do a tournament or even just getting into that groove of going seven days a week. And, um, yeah, no, I, I, I thought where, where are some of the sources in my life that I've gotten motivation from? And, uh, yeah, we'll discuss them now. So the four, the four that I came up with, and this is not limited to these four, but there are, cause there are other places you can get them from, but, um, from failure, from regret, 
from inspiration and from necessity. So uh, the first one, getting motivation from failure is basically just a reflection upon past experience. A great example is uh, in jujitsu, if you fail, like you lose a tournament or if you, you know, are training and you lose a round, you can always get motivation from your losses is specifically what I'm talking about. So, um, you know, so many tournaments I've done, I, uh, the ones that I've won, I haven't really learned as much as the ones I've lost because uh, when you lose it exposes the holes in your game and it shows you where you can improve and uh, also like for me it, it also showed me strategies that my opponents were starting to do to me at the black belt level and a lot of it was actually not very super fancy jujitsu but more just um, really strong fundamental pressuring uncomfortable positions so yeah i realize these guys are doing uh they're doing old school traditional jujitsu on me like positions like stack passing and jumping closed guard and and uh you know old school pressure pinning and passing so after getting beaten by a few really good guys with that type of game i've started to adopt it into my own game and i've realized a how difficult it is to pass with pressure and b how useful it is because you basically funnel your opponent into a position where they're so uncomfortable that they have to either give you their back or give you their arm or their neck um yeah so i'm definitely learning a lot from failures in my life and uh it's it's the failures that kind of motivate me through the hard training sessions yeah we've mentioned before how when things go well usually it's nice to have things go well but those aren't the moments that really stick with you the moments that really stick with you and define you are usually when things go poorly and mm. how you respond to those poor situations that's kind of what defines your character and that's ultimately what defines your success it's easy to do well when everything is going right but how you respond when things are going poorly is really the thing that's going to make or break you over the long term. And in the context of jujitsu, you know, the thing about failure is jujitsu is fundamentally scary. I mean, especially if you've never done it before, everyone who's done jujitsu remembers how scary it was in their first class or even their first few classes, because it just seems like such an uncomfortable, almost violent thing to be doing. But then of course, after you've been doing it for a while, you realize it's really not so bad. And so it's a great example of how if you want to improve in life and get better and grow, you need to put yourself in situations where you could possibly be uncomfortable. And this mm -hmm. ultimately means you have to put yourself in situations where you could fail. And that can be hard to do because nobody likes to fail. <laughs> so right. it's very natural for people to seek out positions of comfort where failure isn't an option. And you see this all over life, right? At the workplace, for example, people often try to dodge challenging projects. They prefer to take on jobs that are easy, that they know they can do. But the problem is, if that's your strategy, then you're not going to be able to grow and take on new, bigger challenges. You're just going to basically be doing the same thing over and over and over again. So that fear of failure really prevents you from stepping into opportunities that would actually help you take it to the next level. Yeah, it's like that saying, you know, you either win or you learn, right? That's a very old jujitsu cliche, and I'm kind of sick of it, but it is true. Uh, you know, a failure, if I was going to say, okay, my goal is to win this tournament, and then I go in and I don't win, um, you know, maybe I come close, or who knows, maybe I even lose my first match and I never make it to the podium. Um, you know, the, failure is kind of what you make of it. If, if it's life or death, winning that jujitsu tournament is like your, you know, that's your life and that's your end goal is winning. Maybe it's worlds or whatever it is. Um, you know, then it's going to be pretty difficult because only a very select few in the world win the world championships. So, um, for me <laughs> realizing I'll probably never win the world championships, um, I, I I know that failure isn't necessarily the outcome of a tournament, but more so to me, what failure is, is actually giving up and just not trying again. Uh, you know, seeing a tournament that I very well could sign up for, but I decide not to. That's sort of where I'm like throwing in the towel and I'm actually quitting because uh, so, I'd like to compete 
years into the future. Um, but if you can, if you lose a match or a tournament, and even if you know, even if it's really heartbreaking, you can still gain a lot from that. Uh, like I said, I learn a lot from my losses. So every time that I don't lose, or sorry, I don't win a match. Yes, it, it is a failure in that I didn't accomplish my goal of getting uh, the victory. But also, there's a lot to be learned and a lot to be gained. And there's always another tournament. So the so I sort of look at. Uh, I kind of look at wins and losses not so much as goals as they are just stepping stones in your journey, which really, the way I'm planning it, hopefully will be uh, a long, long time. Yeah, a loss is only a loss if you don't get anything out of it. If you go into a tournament with a goal in mind and you don't necessarily achieve that goal, you can still turn that into a win as long as you find some value out of it that you can apply next time. It's like we've said before, as long as you have this mindset of Kaizen, of continuous improvement, where you're trying to turn every opportunity into an opportunity to grow, then you never really lose because as long as you get something out of it, that's a learning you can apply to the next time. This is interestingly something I read in a a book a while back called The Lean Startup, a really interesting book, especially in the business community. But basically what they talk about, and I think it's just as applicable to jujitsu, is that, you know, your goal is not always to just like achieve this target result. Sometimes your goal is just to acquire knowledge. So if you do an experiment and the experiment fails, well, If you learn something out of it, you've improved your knowledge of the world, and this is knowledge that you can then use the next time. And that's not really a loss. That's actually a huge win. And you see this very much in jujitsu as well, right? Where, yeah, maybe you lost at a tournament, but if you learn something that will profoundly improve your game from the next time, then you can't really call that a loss. And you Mm -hmm. wouldn't have received that learning opportunity if you hadn't put yourself out there in the first place. So uh, very much like the scientific method, right, where it's not always about doing Doing an experiment and proving yourself right. Like that's not the goal of a scientist is I have this hypothesis and I really need to prove myself right. Like really, it's okay if they prove themselves wrong. All they really want to do is improve knowledge of the world. And whether the result is positive or negative, if it results in increased knowledge, that's a win. Yeah, and actually something that I didn't mention in the previous recordings that kind of just came to my head is the idea of... Um, uh, motivation from failure in the sense of, uh, developing a new technique. So I've, I've trained under Rob now for, God, I don't even know, like six years now, five years, six years. And, um, of course, oh, this fucking cat is scratching again. Are you going to leave this in? <laughs> we should. Do you want me to leave that in? <laughs> yes, I do. I'm probably going to have to get this cat out of this room. She's being annoying. Uh, but yeah, so training under Rob, you know, the, the developer of the like uh, modern leg lock formula, Island Top Team Nanaimo, Rob Bernacki. Um, hold on, this cat. I got it. I just got to deal with this cat. This is staying in. By the way, for listeners, as I mentioned, we've tried this recording eight times. And this is not even the first time Matt has had this exact problem where he's had to remove his cat from the podcasting room while recording. So I'm kind of seeing a pattern here. God, these fucking cats. Okay. Okay. You you know what's funny? Let's just start again. Oh, yeah. What were you saying? Uh, You know what's funny? Because I'm in the same boat as you where I had two cats and then I had my kid, right? And before I had my kid, those two cats were like the center of my life. I loved them so much. I was just always happy to have them around. But now it's like they're (laughs) like... like, fuck off. You're gross. (laughs) (laughs) They're not not even like second class citizens. They're like just bottom of the barrel. I could not care less. You know, the kid has 100% of my attention. Whenever the cat comes around, it's just like, get out of here. You're in my way. (laughs) Yeah, literally like a house plant that eats and shits. (laughs) Oh, we so we bought a new bed, something we've been planning to do for a long time. And, you know, we put aside the money. We bought the bed. We love the bed. Within like 24 hours, the cat had pissed on it. Yeah, that's uh, God, that stuff smells so bad. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Yeah. For for those of you out there who are considering cat ownership, like, hey, I like cats. Cats are cool and all, but their urine smells at a level that is just unreal. Like, I don't know what it is, but it is not like human urine. It is just absolutely vile. 
Luckily, the podcast is sponsored by Litter Robot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have, uh, Steve, on Steve's recommendation, he has this litter box that looks like the Death Star, and it's an automated uh, globe that basically rotates and sifts out the cat waste into a tray into the bottom and then rotates back and levels out the litter on its own. It's all automated. It's pretty amazing actually and uh bought one a few years ago and i think it was like five or six hundred bucks but you don't have to scoop cat shit all the time so well worth the price <laughs> yeah it was, i was gonna say you know you see the price tag and you think man six hundred dollars for a litter box that seems obscene but then you realize after you've been using it for a while like how much it you hate just scooping up cat shit by hand. It's just a totally yeah. different level of convenience if you're yeah. gonna have one of these little things in your life. And it, it, it contains it a lot better. And I, yeah. uh, like, there's not litter that goes everywhere. And also, I think it it really improves the smell of the of yeah. the room. Anyways, what were we talking about? <laughs> I, I think ju- I think jujitsu. I'm not even oh, really yeah. sure at this point. We so, were talking about the. Yes, I remember. So yeah. so we were talking about motivation from failure, and uh, oddly enough, one of the things that I've just realized is, um, so I I loved uh, to develop new jujitsu and test new ideas and experiments out on the mats, and Rob Bernacki has been a huge inspiration of that, and just really like nourishing uh, new techniques that I bring to him and he brings to me, and by nourishing. I mean, he tries to immediately destroy whatever I show him. So here's an example of like motivation from failure. Um, if uh, if I show him something, he's immediately uh, his goal is to break it. So he uses the scientific method essentially to try to uh, find out the weakness in any technique that I sh- that maybe I'm like, hey, I found a new way to to do this or whatever, and he'll he'll immediately try and destroy it. And it's the same thing when he shows me something is I immediately am like, well, how can I destroy this? And so, and then you kind of, from there, when you're developing systems and techniques, you can really go down rabbit holes where, uh, it's almost like you're playing chess. Like one person tries, is like, okay, well, what if I do this? Oh, well then a counter to that would be this. And then you, you go down this rabbit hole where you discover the next most likely sequences. So it's that, uh, you know, that's, that's really what motivates us is like destroying something when we just discover it and see, see if it's going to work or not. I don't even know. Is that motivation from failure or is that motivation from what would you call that? (laughs) Hey, I don't know. It's your rent. You tell me. (laughs) I think, I mean, I guess, yeah, you are motivated by, by failure because uh, in order for me to test something that Rob shows me, I'm trying to make him fail. (laughs) <laughs> so it's kind it's of like kind a of, different way. <laughs> it's like motivation from making someone else fail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but on, it's on, true. And and like that's that's kind of when we show each other things, that's kind of what's to be expected is, is like if he shows me something, I'm like, all right, well, what is my instinctual reaction to to counter that move? And I get the exact same reaction out of him. But it's good because it really it really creates like uh, high level counters and problem solving. And yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I think that what you're describing is kind of almost akin to the scientific method, right? Where you put forth a hypothesis and then everyone's goal is to actively break it. You don't assume that it's right by default. You assume that it's wrong by default and maybe you'll be surprised. So I think that's kind of what you're describing. Yeah. um, And definitely over the last, you know, now I feel like our, the leg lock system we use is a I'll be honest, it's a lot of it is, uh, concepts from the Danaher system plus, uh, you know, the Eddie Cummings style, uh, is sort of where, Rob, that's where Rob developed the, uh, fundamental concepts with his leg locks was going and training with Eddie Cummings. But now we're seeing different styles, completely different leg lock entries. Uh, I've constantly been inspired by guys like Lachlan Giles, Oliver Taza, Ryan Hall, some of the positions they play and how they get into some of these positions is, uh, you know, it's, it just keeps changing. So yeah, uh, seeing, seeing the way that these guys are doing things is, is also very motivating because you're like, wow, there's actually new ways we can do this, <laughs> you know? 
Well, that's another reason why you have to try to actively break your own ideas, because the world is always evolving. And so if you just stick to doing things the same way you've always been doing them, then eventually you're going to get outpaced, right? Just look at Mm. companies like Blockbuster or Kodak, where they owned the entire world at some point. They just dominated an industry and they got complacent. And when real threats started to emerge, they didn't take the appropriate action. And then just look how quickly they got obliterated, right? When you're king of the mountain, (laughs) you know, it takes a lot less than you might expect to get knocked out of that position. And really what you need to do is be actively trying to break your own ideas using the scientific method. You need to be always challenging yourself. I see this at the workplace too, where you see people who get really complacent in their job. They've been doing the same thing for years and years and years and years, and they're not really pushing or challenging themselves. They're just showing up to work, doing what they're paid to do and going home. And they're kind of going through the motions. And the problem is you wind up not growing, right? These are the people who wind up stuck in the same job forever because they're not actively pushing themselves beyond their boundaries. Um, And, you know, that's kind of where I've heard the saying that, you know, what, what type of experience do you have? Do you have 20 years of experience or do you have one year of experience 20 times. And it's always better to have 20 years of experience. You want to learn from your experience or else it doesn't actually mean anything. So that's why it's so critical not to get complacent and to always try to actively break your own ideas. That's such a powerful vehicle for growing and improving your knowledge over time. Yeah, what you actually discussed uh, just now kind of reminds me of actually what we're about to talk about next, which is uh, motivation from regret. And you can get regret from uh, sometimes it can be from training too hard and possibly getting injured or something like that. But more than likely, it's probably from under training or under preparing uh, or setting the bar too low or doing something as horrible as like missing weight when you're signing up for a competition, because uh, that will definitely leave leave a horrible feeling in your stomach. Uh, no, no pun intended in terms of regret, because uh, when I'm in training, uh, getting ready for a tournament or I'm dieting and it sucks and it's miserable. I remember that it would be way worse to not miss, uh, so to not make weight at all. So, um, the, the idea of not doing my best or not training as hard as I possibly could, I think about how that will, will feel in the future if I don't get as good as I possibly could. And I have regret over, you know, my, my approach to jujitsu. So I try to always make every day count. I try and make, uh, every day count for each one of my students. And especially when I'm signing up for a tournament. Uh, especially now that I'm only doing this full time, it's much easier for me to dedicate myself fully to becoming a better competitor and coach and referee. So I can really, uh, because I can dedicate my life to jujitsu, I feel like uh, I'm not going to regret anything. Whereas before I used to, you know, have a full time job cooking and, and I was definitely regretting that career near the end because I was like, man, I should be training right now. Like I should be training twice a day if possible. So I, I it's, it's, I'm just happy that I was able to make that switch. And now I feel like I'm kind of done with regret because I get to do jujitsu every day for a living. Well, maybe that's actually a good segue into the other cause of motivation that you wanted to discuss, which is regret. Motivation stemming from regret, which can mean both regret of things that you did wrong in the past or potential regret of lessons coming up in the future, you know, the fear of regretting your actions in the future. Both of those can be motivating in different ways. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, um, going into it, you know, let's say I'm signing up for a tournament and I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't train as hard as I could or I miss training sessions. For me, missing training was like very early on in my career, I, I started to realize I hate missing training and I start to get that feeling of guilt when I on the days that I couldn't make it. So it was something that I, from a blue belt or possibly three stripe white belt, I decided this was something that I, I kind of want to do this like every day if possible. I just couldn't get enough jujitsu uh, because I felt like if I missed jujitsu class, then like I would have that guilt and that regret of not improving or not doing all that I could with what, with whatever I had. So, um, if I sign up for a tournament and then I, I don't do my cardio or I don't do my, uh, conditioning or I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I start sitting out rounds and I start becoming lazy and complacent with my thinking, then, um, you know, I, I might not do well in that tournament. And then when I look back, I think I, di- I didn't do all I could have, or even, you know, sometimes even worse is if you go out, you do a match 
and you know you, you lose narrowly or by a big margin and then you you think to yourself I could have done more like I could have left I could have left more of myself out there and emptied the tank a little bit more but instead I sort of held back so that's that's one of my biggest regrets actually is is uh if I do a tournament and I I don't apply myself fully or you know execute the game plan that I wanted to execute you know, something interesting that we talked about on one of our prior attempts at this episode was <laughs> one of the prior yeah. eight attempts. Yeah. Was self-defeating thoughts or almost self-fulfilling prophecies where people talk up the fact that, oh, you know, I'm just doing this for fun or oh, I'm probably not going to win, but I'm going to go out there anyway, where people basically set the table for failure before they even try. And I know that was something that you had some thoughts on. Maybe we should talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I know a few people, um, one person in particular who always has that kind of, it's like a, this person competes quite a bit, but they have a very relaxed outlook on jujitsu. And what it ends up getting you is somebody who never really applies themselves fully. And it's almost like, like you said, they're setting the table of failure because possibly this person doesn't actually think that they can win at a highest level. Um, it's almost like they don't care enough. And, you know, I think there's such a thing as caring too much where it's like, you know, I think a prime example is actually Ronda Rousey. For anyone who's read her book, she cries a lot. <laughs> Whenever she loses, she cries. Um, and she just despises losing. And I actually have noticed that a lot in judo culture, which is kind of funny, judo competitors. But, um, yeah, so that, that would be on the, on the side of the spectrum of somebody who, uh, winning is their life and they just cannot tolerate loss and it, it, uh, eats at their life and eats at their, you know, keeps them up at night. And then there's the other end of the spectrum of competitors who literally don't care enough and they don't try enough. They don't train hard enough. When they lose, they, they make excuses and they, uh, you know, they, I think there is a lack of ownership there because if you're going to be competing, I mean, you probably want to win. So I'm somewhere in the middle where I love to win and I, I always train as hard as I can and I'm always doing the most I can to learn and to progress. But at the same time, I realize that, you know, there's only there's only one gold medal per division given out. Uh, sometimes it's it's your day and other days it's not your day. But I definitely would regret not signing up for a tournament and then, you know, see guys on the podium that I know I can win because it's like, well, that should be you out there. And uh, sitting out tournaments sucks too because especially if you're healthy and, you know, you really want to be there. I think Nogi Worlds last year was one of those events where I really wanted to go. And because of this whole COVID-19 thing, I should have gone because <laughs> it doesn't look like I'm going to any tournaments this year. So... Um, yeah, go, sitting out when you know you can go in and even in training, sitting out rounds when you know you should be in there training, but you're too lazy to get back in there. Yeah, there's a balancing act you have to do where on one hand, you need to care. But on the other hand, you don't want to care too much. There's kind of this sweet spot and it's really sort of hard to figure it out, right? If you don't care at all or if you put up this aura of not caring, you have to ask yourself if you're really engaged in defensive thinking, where you're trying to protect yourself from failure before you even really actually make the effort. And this is a mental trap that a lot of people can fall into, where they're going to walk into something and right even before they try, they'll say, oh, I probably won't be very good at it. Or, you know, I'm just, I'm just in there for fun or whatever. And to some extent, you know, those can be true statements, but if you're making excuses before you even try, then really you need to ask yourself, am I actually fully committed to this cause? And is it worth even doing if I'm not fully committed to this cause? Uh, that's something that you need to really actually put some thought into. Now, that's not to say that you need to be fully and 100% committed to every single thing you do in life. That's really just not reasonable. Some things you truly only do for fun. Like, I mean, I like video games, but I only do that for fun. There's a limit to how much time I'm willing to invest in that because it's just a hobby, right? So there's a threshold for everyone and for what they do, but there is also this degree of defensive thinking that you have to be wary of. Now, the flip side is caring too much to the point where a loss can devastate you <laughs> to the point yeah. where you're not even able to participate anymore. That's a level of caring too much. And 
the way that I kind of mentally balance this dichotomy is I like to encourage people to focus on building good habits instead of chasing results. Because mm-hmm. if you're constantly building good habits, then you don't really have anything to be ashamed of because you're not necessarily married to the outcome of what happens. On the other hand, if you are married to the outcome of what happens, then if you don't get that outcome, the wheels can fall right off the bus, right? So mm-hmm. rather than worrying about winning this tournament and defining my entire self-worth around whether I win, I would prefer to focus on the day-to-day habits that I need to execute that will set me up for that success and defining myself by my ability to be consistent in those habits. Because if you're doing the right thing over time, I mean, yeah, you might not win this tournament, but you might win the next one, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Wins and losses are not something that you can always fully control, but you can control the quality of your training and of the habits that you build. And I think that that's a very powerful mindset to have, first of all, because it encourages you to build good habits, but also it prevents you from getting overly married to the result. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the thing about tournaments for competitors is there's always going to be um, another tournament. There's always going to be someone who can beat you no matter who you are, um, eventually everyone loses. And that's one thing that I kind of realized around the time I turned purple. Uh, all through my blue belt years, I was kind of, you know, each tournament would be uh, kind of nerve-wracking leading up to the tournaments and almost dreading going and questioning if it's something that I wanted to do. But, um, you know, th- you realize that there's always going to be another tournament. So, you know, win or lose, no one really cares anyways, especially if you're like blue belt and it's a local tournament. Um, you don't, you know, there's always, win or loss, there's always going to be another opportunity to prove it to yourself, prove it to your team and to everyone around. So I, I just sort of look at it that way and think, well, you know, even if I do lose this tournament, you know, like you, like we were saying, it's not the end of the world. Um, you know, unless, unless literally winning is, you know, you want your goal is to be the world champion. If that's the case, then you might have a different outcome on it. But uh, there are things that I that are important to me aside from winning tournaments. So having having a successful business and obviously being there as a father and and things like that is also very important to me. So it was never like life or death going into a tournament for me. Yeah. And I would argue that even if your goal is to be a world champion or to have a specific outcome in a specific tournament, no one's saying you can't have those goals. It's definitely good to goal set and to have a target that you want to hit, but it's important not to get married to that target. It's better to get married to the habits that will lead to success. I think that that prevents you from getting overly focused on individual battles and more focused on the war, you know, because it's going to be those habits that ultimately make the the difference in the long run. So it's one of those things where you got to juggle a lot of conflicting ideas in your head, right? And I, I don't know if there is really a, a right answer, but that's the best one I found in terms of how to be motivated, how to set goals, but without being actually overly married to those goals. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, yeah. So the next example of motivation, where, to, where you can find motivation, and this one I used a lot as a chef is through inspiration, uh, specifically insp- inspiration of your peers. So if I'm uh, a chef who's trying to develop new dishes and and think about how I can present dishes differently, uh, I'm a pretty visual learner. And when I see techniques in a magazine, for example, or or even on social media, all of a sudden I get like a burst of creativity, and I I can consider the techniques that are being used and the contrasts of the colors and the shapes on a plate. And then that always sort of helped me. If I was designing dishes or, or uh, a menu, it, it would always help me by looking at uh, food and just thinking about food rather than just sitting there with nothing to work off of and just, you know, coming up with stuff. So I find, you know, what, it, what do they say about... Uh, uh, well, well, there is there is a saying, imitation is the best form of flattery, but also um, there is the saying in jiu-jitsu where you never really invent anything. Like everything that you've you've discovered most likely has already been done. Um, you know, maybe with some some exceptions of like some really wild lapel style guards and things like that. But, uh, you know, just by watching people do moves, you could develop entire systems uh you know keenan says a lot of the time that squid guard is basically the lapella plata position that i've seen cobrina use in in uh, you know b- since before 2010 he was using this type of lapel style guard so he took that and developed 
entries, transitions, uh, branching positions, um, you know, control points, and also things like worm wrestling, you know, just coming up with the lapel and wrestling from that position. So you can take something that you see and kind of, you know, uh, develop it yourself all the time just by just by sort of throwing your own spin on it and having different outlooks on it. So that's and I think that's kind of why you'll see people, you know, teach a seminar on something as simple as, say, an arm bar is because they have developed their own. They've taken something that they've seen and then they've developed their own details and their own entries and whatever. Uh, And that's kind of how you can. Uh, create brand new things is just by looking, watching some of the best people uh, doing jujitsu in the world, watching what they're doing year after year. And uh, what's wonderful about jujitsu is that the sport is constantly, you know, I've never seen, I've never seen a sport change so much as jujitsu does. It literally, literally changes every year. There hasn't been one year that I've, I've done jujitsu where uh, things sort of stand still. And I feel like I'm, I'm, there's not an opportunity to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inspiration is a fascinating form of motivation because like you said, it's, I know that sometimes people get kind of down on themselves because they don't want to feel like they're copying someone. But like you said, I mean, all of human knowledge is based on standing on the shoulders of giants and learning from the people who came before you, right? If you try to go it completely alone, you're really not making maximal leverage of all of the advantages that you have around you. So mm-hmm. it's totally okay to look at what other people are doing and adapt it and make it uniquely your own. And to the example you gave about seminars, I mean, when I teach a seminar, that's how I love to do it. I don't like being that seminar guy who shows 12 different flashy techniques that are just exotic and weird and would never actually be used in reality. And I know that a lot of people feel pressured to do that when they do seminars because they want to show something that's different. And I guess they feel that people get more value for their money from that. But personally, that's not my stance. I mean, I've always felt when I'm either attending or giving a seminar, the most valuable thing you can do is a super, super deep dive into one or two maybe seemingly simple things. And then just to explore those in a really, really deep level of detail and talk really about your thought process and the things that make that technique unique for you. So that's always the type of seminar that I prefer. I mean, some of the best seminars I've been to are ones where you're only showing like one or two different techniques and you're not going through this whole cycle of things that you're never actually going to use. And as far as inspiration goes, there's kind of a... I know that some people are a little bit hesitant to look to others for inspiration because I think there's kind of a tinge of jealousy there. I mean, it, and it's hard to fight that sometimes if you look at someone who's having a lot of success. You know, maybe you're running a business and you look at what someone else in your city is doing and technically they're your competitor and they're doing well. And, you know, it, it can be hard to mm-hmm. be anything but jealous when you're competing with someone, but really that's a learning opportunity for you to take a look at what has worked and to use that as inspiration for yourself. You have to learn to kind of get over that mindset of scarcity. Something that you talked about, Matt, in the past was that you've got to learn to be happy for other people. And that's so important here because if you can't be happy for other people, then you'll never really be able to get inspired by other people. Human beings seem to naturally want to root for the underdog. So (laughs) when someone achieves a lot of success, usually people are right there to try and tear them back down again, right? It's, Mm. you know, everyone likes to hate on the rich guy. But if you see someone succeeding, if you can learn to appreciate what they've done, you can learn those lessons yourself. So that's such an important part of learning is to have that abundance mindset where you can be happy for other people, not be threatened by them and open your mind to the lessons that they can teach you. Oh yeah, absolutely. And actually, thanks for bringing up the the um, example of a business because that is an awesome example where um, if you're looking to get new leads in the door, and if you're if you're a martial arts gym owner, you know how important it is to get new leads all the time. And I think your marketing will really reflect the type of people that you bring in through the door and my advice for those who are maybe just starting a gym or um you know are just thinking about how how they're going to target their audience obviously you would instead of just blanketing the market and trying to get as many people as you can it's important to try and target people who are uh, good leads, like ones that will, that actually want to do jujitsu, that will show up to their intro or their, you know, their first class or whatever. They're not just, go- they're not just signing up and then they're never going to show up. So it's like, how do I target those people? 
And, um, you know, if you see something that your competitor is doing, uh, that you're not doing and they're having success, then there's nothing wrong with sort of just taking a lesson from them and adopting a certain marketing style or, you know, maybe your ad is overcomplicated. Maybe you're, you are, uh, maybe they, you see one of your competitors with like an offer that really you're like, Hey, I should, maybe I could do that. And I could, I could see some return on that. So there's tons of different ways you can, from a business standpoint, you can, um, you know, change the marketing of your gym and, and change how you get people through the door. And I, I've done that a lot, you know, as someone who hasn't had a gym for very long, it's about five years now. Um, I regularly will go to my, uh, the gym and gyms in the area. I'll go to their websites and sort of see what does their website look like? How do they talk about jujitsu? How do they describe themselves? You know, how, what's, what kind of, uh, are they building their web? How are they building their web pages and things like that? You know, what kind of information are they showing on the website? And you can, you know, you can really learn a lot from stuff like that. Yeah, I follow this guy named Ramit Sethi. He's a well-known business coach, and a piece of advice he gives on this topic is: when you feel like you want to disparage someone, try to reprogram that part of your brain. So instead, you get curious and you ask them questions, and you ask yourself, "How were they able to do what they did?" Now, Matt, now that we're actually starting to achieve a modicum of success on this podcast, I've noticed that we've started to get this where every once in a while I see these really snippy comments where we get these really snippy messages, basically, that kind of come across like not so much critical feedback, but more like they want to kind of try and tear you down a little bit. Oh, oh you mean literally every social media comment section? <laughs> well, you know what? Honestly, like I would say 99% of our listeners have been awesome, but it does happen, right? And you see this snippy attitude a lot all over the internet. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the naturally impersonal nature of the internet, but it obviously shuts down discourse. And the other problem is it prevents you from thinking curiously. I mean, if you see someone who who's being wildly successful, rather than creating this narrative in your head about what a bad person they must be and trying to take that out on them, why don't you just ask some genuine questions? You might learn something. And I think that's where that abundance mindset comes into play because you have to learn not to be threatened by the success of the others. Life is not a zero-sum game where if someone gets something, it means that they must have taken it away from you or someone else, right? It is possible to grow the pie for everybody. That's what economics is all about is... Mm -hmm. creating growth for everybody and growing the entire pie so that even if you get a very small sliver of it, well, if the pie itself gets bigger, it's still better for you. So it is not always the case that someone else's success comes at your expense. And it's good to learn to look past that mentality and more towards how you can learn the lessons from those who have been successful. Yeah, but I think what's even more important is actually learning from people who aren't successful as well. Like I always... uh I mentioned this talking to to my uh the kids the other day on the live stream we we're talking about um you know how you can learn from other people and and just by watching them and and part of it was learning from their mistakes because uh there's another saying where uh what is it the uh, the wise man learns from the other person's mistake right so you can you can learn a lot by watching and seeing what what uh, what doesn't work for other people and then think well I guess I'm not going to do that right uh if 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 that's the case yeah, learning by counterexample. It's funny you mention that because I remember I worked at this company for several years and I learned so much on that job, not because everyone there was brilliant, actually quite the opposite, because a lot of the people were totally stupid. And so watching what they did and thinking to myself, man, I never want to do that. I never want to make that mistake. <laughs> like I learned so much about how not to run a business just by watching the people yeah. on that job. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes those counterexample lessons can be so much more valuable than just watching people doing things the right way, but just looking at how they did them the wrong way and just <laughs> deciding you're not going to ever make that mistake yourself. Well, and during my journey, I've, I've trained under some people that I, uh, that, you know, could be really good coaches, but in other ways, I didn't like how they tra treated people and I didn't like some of their business practices. And so I kind of learned how not to treat people so that one day, you know, it was a pipe dream years ago, but one day when I do get a gym, I'm going to do something differently and I'm going to, uh, you know, implement different strategies and ethics that I think people will tend to stick around a little bit more. And that's kind of my, that's my, uh, to your point about watching other people, 
um, how they market their businesses and how they, you know, grow their businesses and things like that is, uh, instead of thinking, oh, well, so-and-so down the street, it has more than me and God, how come they're doing so good? I wish I could, I could get, uh, get the, get those leads that they're getting and things like that. Well, you can look into how they're marketing, look into how they do different things, uh, um, you know, day to day in the gym and how they teach classes and things like that and, uh, take the lessons and then make your business as good as possible. So realistically, you know, if, if people know who you are and they know that you do your job well and you're a good coach and you're, you know, you, you create a good atmosphere for people to train in, then, well, sometimes people will jump ship and come to you be ju- just because you are sticking to your authenticity and you're, you know, you're building a business the best way that you see possible. So a lot of the time people will see that and they will actually gravitate towards you. Like I've had a, I've had quite a few leads come from other gyms and a lot of it is not just my competition history, but because how I teach people, uh, the systems that we have, how, uh, how I treat people, I'm always willing to, you know, stay after and listen to people that have problems or questions or things like that. So, um, you know, if you, if you're a really authentic person with good morals and, and ethics, then people will stick around and there's no need to be jealous of somebody down the street. Uh, you, if you do your job properly, I fully believe that, uh, leads will be coming to you. Well, that's another great example of prioritizing habits over results, right? Rather than getting caught up on the result, which in this case would be getting all of the good leads, you're focused on building the right habits, which is running an ethical business and taking care of your customers. And if you do that every single day, then the results will eventually come. That's a Mm -hmm. far better approach than trying to chase leads or some other surface metric that isn't really going to set you up for long-term success. Yeah, it's like I'm going to I'm going to do things my way. Um and, you know, God help me, hopefully people will find it such a good training environment that they're willing to uh sustain my business for years to come and hopefully I can uh you know, help them through their jiu-jitsu journeys as best as I can and so it becomes a a great symbiotic relationship. And I've seen people who are excellent teachers excellent competitors but because of the way that they treat people uh they they have a lot of turnover at their gym for many different reasons Mm -hmm. and um you know if people like your product and you you know they they like you as a person and they want to see you succeed they're gonna stick around they're gonna be they're gonna you know help you become a success because um you know they, they they're willing to dedicate their time and their resources to you whereas if you are really good at jiu-jitsu but you're a piece of shit then people will come and then they'll reach a certain level they'll probably learn your knowledge and then they might even leave or they might start their own business which is also totally awesome uh as a gym owner that's one of my dreams is to see uh students of mine go leave and to open up their own businesses but um but yeah if you're if you're a garbage person off the mats then no one really wants to be around you anyways and it don't matter how good you are at jujitsu now of course that said if you do let your students go off and create their own gyms it goes without saying that they you ha- own them yeah they they, <laughs> they have to pay the affiliation fee and they have to sell on guard branded geese right i'm assuming that's, that's just right. a requirement yes <laughs> it's a, it's like a nice little income trail yeah. that just just keeps feeding me yeah, my yeah. appetites yeah no but uh you know and think things like that like making making your students wear your geese and and uh you know i i don't think that that's necessarily a bad idea i think that it's a bad idea if you get the gi for a really cheap price and then you know you charge a lot for it and you literally say you can't wear any of your other geese you know like i I i think there is a way that you can encourage gear without making it compulsory and then that's when uh there's some ethics involved but when you make it like you have to wear my geese none of your geese that you already have you can wear and you know i'm it's gonna cost the gi is gonna cost you like 225 or whatever it's like well now that now we're getting into cash grab territory and some people fall for that some people Mm -hmm. can't see the um the kind of scamage that goes on there but a lot of people do see it and it turns off a lot of people so uh things like that i kind of 
I don't like to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One other thing on inspiration that's probably worth pointing out is that inspiration is a type of motivation that you can give to other people and it mm-hmm. costs you nothing to do it. If you are genuinely complimentary to other people and you tell them what they're doing well, that's going to inspire them and that's going to motivate them. Mm-hmm. And it's a good habit to get into. I always think it's great when after you have a good role with someone, you take some time to thank them and to compliment them on what they did really well, mm-hmm. tell them where their strengths are, make sure that they feel appreciated. Those little things add up. And if you make a habit of doing that and being grateful for the people around you, it creates a benefit where they will really be inspired and it deepens the relationship between you and them. So just a general good habit to get into is to express gratitude to those around you. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, selfishly, it also makes you feel good. So <laughs> I had uh, I had someone from another gym roll with me today at the gym. Uh, at the gym during uh, some training and they said, uh, you know, oh, uh, or, or, or no, they didn't even have a question. I realized something that they were doing that I thought, hey, I got a concept that will really help you here. I think you can get a lot more Kazushi if you sit up a little bit more and, and into the sit-up guard. And he, his mind was blown. He was like, oh my God, like my, my coach doesn't usually show me like stuff after we roll they and my coach doesn't let me get into good positions on them whereas you are and, and these are not their words there but i can tell that they're kind of like kind of uh shocked by the fact that i'm giving them this this i'm, I'm investing my time in after and selfishly it makes me feel great because i feel like i help someone um and then next time i roll with that person They've got a new tool in their belt, which makes me a better grappler because I have to defeat it now. So it's like a, it's kind of like a symbiotic relationship that goes back and forth. But generally speaking, like I said, like, uh, helping people and, and seeing people succeed is like a huge motivator for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess the only last thing to talk about then is necessity. Yeah, so necessity would obviously be situations where your back is against the wall. Maybe you have a deadline at work or, you know, maybe you're, uh, you're in a really important tournament. It's really important that you win or if you win, you get money or you, you qualify, you know, or, or for example, you know, we, we just became fathers a few years ago, Steve. And, and, uh, you know, I bet now when you go to work and when you do things, you, you always have that in the back of your mind. I know I do. Like when I go and, and, uh, well, whether I can, Pete, I think about my family. I think about my kids when I'm making business decisions and I'm, I'm, you know, there are days when I, sometimes I don't want to go to training. Some, you know, it's very rare actually, but days where I, I wish I could just stay home. Um, I, I think of them and I think, no, I have to put this time in because I want my business to be as good as it can be because, you know, I, I, a, I need to provide for my kids, but B, I want to also be that example for them that, uh, hard work is, is really important. So that I've had definitely times in my life where, you know, if, if, if I, if I give up now, I'm, everything's going to fail. You know, like when I started my gym, there were times when I'd be pulling lots of hours between cooking and jujitsu. And I felt like I have to make this work (laughs) because if I don't make this work, I'm going to be stuck in my old career forever. And that's going to fucking suck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, necessity is obviously one of the greatest motivators you can have because in a lot of ways, the decision is kind of taken out of your hands. The interesting thing about necessity is that you can actually create artificial necessity to motivate yourself. So even if you're not in a situation where you absolutely must do something, you can create such a situation around yourself to instill in you that motivation that comes from necessity. And an example of this that I hear a lot of uh, financial advisors give is that at the end of the month, when you get your paycheck, what you should do is first of all, take the amount of money you want to save and put it aside before you do anything else, before you pay any of your bills, before you buy yourself anything. First thing you do is you take aside the amount of money that you want to save and you put it away in a place where you can't even touch it. And that strategy is called paying yourself first. And that's contrary to what most people do, which is they get paid, they spend their money all throughout the month, and then... Pokers and blow. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then by the time the next paycheck comes around, if there's anything left, then they put it into the savings. And there's never as much left there as you want it to be. Because mm-hmm. if you're not actively creating a situation where you have to save, it becomes very challenging to actually make that happen, especially mm-hmm. given how expensive day-to-day life is, right? But interestingly, if you make that commitment that like, hey, look, no matter 
matter what happens, I'm going to save 10% of my paycheck. And as soon as you get that money, before you pay down anything, you take that 10% and you put it somewhere where it's not easy for you to get. If you just do that, you'll be amazed how well you're able to actually live within your means, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and by doing this, you're creating an artificial necessity. Yeah. And that motivates you to do things the right way. So you can use these kind of artificial constraints all throughout your life. Just if there's something that you really need to be motivated at, if you cook the scenario so that you are forced to treat it as a necessity, then a lot of the time you'll find the motivation will come. Yeah, this isn't necessarily necessity, but like I've always kind of been the the kind of guy where, you know, ever since I started lifting weights or doing jujitsu, it's like I try to always do that one more round or that mm-hmm. one more repetition, you know, and, and I think to myself like, okay, my life is on the line. I have to do this other round or even when I'm dead tired and you know, the, you, you just, before you know it, the minute rest between rounds is over. Um, and it'd just be so comfortable to just sit down and not train. It's like, no, I have to, I have to get in there. Like uh, if, if I don't do that, I'm, I'm going to die. Like my goal is I have to always do that. Or if you know, any, basically any time in business or in your job when your back is against the wall. Maybe you're living check to check or you're in debt or whatever. It's like those are the times where I find it easy to dig deep and sort of uh, just find a way, right? Like uh, resourceful, hardworking people find a way. And that's that's you know sometimes sometimes uh the difference between winning and losing so you if you if you don't just if you can't find a way then uh yeah you're probably just gonna everything's gonna fall apart you know i kind of wonder if there's that's why there's so many like entrepreneurs that immigrate in is because they need to succeed so they find a way to do it whereas if you very likely yeah yeah, whereas if you live relatively comfortably you don't need to step up and go to the Mm -hmm. next level but of course if you don't have money then you need to and that necessity is fuel there's a book that i've been meaning to read called the power of broke by damon john where now granted i haven't read it but i think that's what it's about where he's talking about how if you're broke that can be one of the greatest motivations of all because you have to succeed there is a necessity there you're not comfortable and lazy like you would be otherwise if you could just you know live off of a a modest salary and not really have to ever take a step outside of your comfort zone yeah so like i said when when i'm stressed out and like under pressure and i uh you can like you what did you say setting false uh setting false creating artificial necessity where basically you you create a situation where due to the way you've organized things there is a necessity even if there wouldn't otherwise be one yeah like those are that's such a good way to get stuff done especially like i don't i don't know what's more motivated especially if you don't want to do something if you need to do it in order to survive you're going to definitely be motivated to do it and make things work and I, i think i think starting a business is probably the example in my life where that uh that is the you know the most obvious example where it's like if if this doesn't work i've well well okay for example when i announced that i was opening my gym on social media and i was just dying for please please god give me one lead like give me give me i want to go to class tonight and have somebody to roll with i don't i don't just want to sit there for two hours again but i've already told everyone hey i'm opening my gym on this day uh we're these this is the schedule this is my goal uh come in if you want it's like well i've already told people so i don't want to i don't want to tell the world that i'm opening my gym and then a few months down the road fold it and have to tell people that ask me about it oh yeah well that didn't work out right yeah so again there's that motivation from failure but also necessity yeah something that i've heard as a common strategy is having an accountability buddy where you know if you want to get in shape you and your buddy make commitments that you'll go and work out together And the reason why that can help is because if you commit to yourself, then you're only letting yourself down. But if you make a public statement about what you're going to do, Mm -hmm. then there becomes some pressure to live up to that statement. So putting yourself out there and saying you're going to do something often creates a pressure in yourself where you feel obliged to then do that. So that can also be a form of motivation. Yep. And uh, that works really well for me. (laughs) I I guess it's motivation from not wanting to look like a useless asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a similar example, you were talking about your workouts and Muhammad Ali had a great quote about this. He said, I don't count my sit-ups. I only start counting when it starts hurting. Mm. When I feel pain, that's when I start counting because that's when it really counts. And that's a great quote, right? I've actually started 
thinking maybe I should structure my workouts around that too, because after you've been doing the same reps over and over again, it becomes pretty Mm -hmm. easy to do that. And your body gets comfortable doing that. And I started thinking maybe rather than trying to bang out 10 reps, what I should do is bang out as many reps as I can before I get exhausted and then start counting. That's good. (laughs) So that's something, that's something I thought of doing, but I haven't done it yet because I'm a wuss. (laughs) Yeah. Cause I'm mentally not, not (laughs) strong. No, I can't say that about you. You're pretty mentally strong. Uh, Oh, well, thank you. Just not physically. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You and your, anything else? You and your turtle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, I get a lot of fan comments now about turtle. Now that we've got a bit of a following, everyone's always asking about it. So I don't know. Maybe I'll get casting to let me do an instructional with them. Um, okay. So anything else, (laughs) anything else that you want to cover or do you think we should wrap it up? Uh, I think that's good. Are we doing a question today or? Yeah, yeah, I got a good question here. More of a statement, but I'll definitely provide it. So just to recap the mental models we talked about today, we talked about growth from discomfort. Any type of personal growth requires you to step outside of your comfort zone. So if you're always living inside that comfort zone, you're basically just in a hamster wheel. You're never really taking the opportunity to grow and improve yourself. So being able to push yourself beyond those boundaries is one of the keys to personal growth. We talked about Kaizen, the art of continuous improvement. The idea being that no matter what you do, you want to evaluate beforehand what your plan is. You want to do it. And then afterwards, you want to reassess and make adjustments. And you do this in a continuous loop. And the idea is, regardless of whether you win or lose, you take every opportunity to improve. We talked about the scientific method where you put forth a hypothesis and you're not necessarily hoping that you're going to be right, but you're actively trying to prove yourself wrong. And that's so key when it comes to growth because it prevents you from getting truly comfortable and complacent with what you're doing. We talked about defensive thinking where you start making experiences excuses for failure before you even try. We talked about habits over results, a great strategy for long-term growth, where rather than obsessing over achieving certain target goals and defining yourself by whether you succeed at those goals, you focus and obsess on building quality habits and being consistent with those habits. And those habits are the things that will ultimately lead you to the results that you want. And we talked about the abundance mindset, meaning you need to learn to be happy for other people. You need to to not look at someone else's gain as a loss for yourself. Because if you want to learn from people, the best way to do that is to have an open mind to what they're doing. And it's hard to do that if you're jealous. So now, Matt, with that said, here is what our listener wrote in on. They wanted to talk about the submission as position episode that we did. And in particular, they wanted to add another reason for submission as position. If you recall, we talked on that episode about some reasons why you would want to employ this strategy. This person brought up another good reason, which is that submission as position is a way to move into and execute submissions with less risk of injury to your partner. This especially applies when going against a smaller, weaker, or lower skilled opponent. Furthermore, setting an example for lower skilled training partners, showing them that they don't need to be spazzy to get subs, This has been among the tricks of this person's sleeve, and this person is a bigger person and has said that they've got a lot of compliments for being able to roll with smaller people without much added risk of injury or unnecessary discomfort. So I think that's a great point, which is that beyond being effective just in the combat space, learning to turn your submissions into positions that you actually play gives you that kind of control so that you're not really risking seriously hurting a person. Because if you are playing your submission like a position, then you shouldn't need to just dive on something and crank with all your strength, right? You should be able to control it all the way through. So that's going to be safer for your training partner as well. Yeah, that totally reminds me of like getting a Kimura control and then just holding it and watching your partner just like you know kind of if they don't know where they are they're kind of just freaking out and trying to escape uh funny you know we talked about that before on one of the previous recordings of this topic but <laughs> we sure did yeah. <laughs> but uh the other day like i had uh I, I had a guy we were just rolling and i had one hook in and then i had an opposite body ride so i had a like uh, an S grip around his far shoulder as well as a hook on the opposite hip. So he was pretty twisted up and I just held the position just to, obviously I was working my way towards the back and I was like halfway there 
And his posture was clearly broken because uh, I had his spine twisted and he totally, you know, wasn't listening to his body. And he tried to essentially just contract his abdomen so that he he improved his own posture through force. And he ended up popping his own rib. And I was just oh. this, so that I, I like I tried to just hold it like I, I had his posture somewhat broken, but I wasn't like twisting his back or, or forcing a back take. And I just sort of held it there. So so that he could feel that his posture was broken and his reaction was to just completely put way too much effort into his twisting when his body was already out of uh his posture was already broken and yeah he, he probably like tweaked his cartilage or something in between his ribs um but definitely i love this example because uh you know definitely if you if if you are so good at certain systems, whether it be a back control system uh, a leg attack system or kimura system um it's a real test and showing of skill if you can just hold that and your partner can't do anything. Yeah. That's that's where like real control leading to submission happens. So uh, definitely yeah. a great way to not only get better at systems and sort of learn how they work and how you can transition to and from other systems, but also to show the new people in class, hey, I can get this and I don't have to do a whole lot of movement. I don't have to be explosive or strong. I just know how to break your alignment. And so I can just keep you here uh, as I wish and do whatever I want. Yeah. And it's also fun when you're doing that to just look them right in the eyes and just look really disappointed in them. (laughs) Or in the crucifix, you can just be like... Ah, how do you, like you're right next to their ear, just like go to sleep. <laughs> or the other thing that you can do is while you're holding them there and they're frantically trying to escape, you just look across the mat and start having a casual conversation with someone else on the other side of the room while you're sparring and this person is unable to get out. That's a great example to set for someone who's never done jujitsu before. <laughs> I don't know. It kind of is because if you're like a white belt and you come in and these guys are kicking your ass without even paying attention to you, it sort of does show the power of the art. But yeah, that's also true. (laughs) Anyway, I think that was an awesome chat and I'm happy to see that we actually got this done. Hopefully we'll be able to save quality audio that we can release this time. Yeah. So let's check the recording. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Cross your fingers. Hopefully it came out okay. Well, let's get this done so I can do that. So just to recap this whole thing, of course, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. That's the single most helpful thing you can do to support this show. If it has been of any value to you, we'd really appreciate it if you could put some sponsorship money there. That kind of thing is what gives us the motivation to keep keep the show going and to provide it for free. Of course, we also provide a lot of incentives and benefits and extra content to people in the premium tiers. Additionally, you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com, our homepage. On there, we've got a database of all of the mental models we talk about here on the show, as well as a contact form that you can use to get in touch with us. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store. That's where you can pick up our merch, including t-shirts, ski patches, and hoodies. And you can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join, which is where you can sign up for our mailing list. You can also check us out on Facebook and on Instagram. Cool. Thanks a lot for the Patreon supporters. Uh, it really helps us out with the podcast and it motivates us. And to those of you who are just listening for free, we still love you, but just know that you're cheap and it pisses yeah. us off. <laughs> we still love you, but you're we're disappointed in you. Yeah. We're not mad. We're just disappointed. Yeah. We love you enough that we attempted this episode eight times, and hopefully I'm going to hit the stop button and listen to it back and find out that we succeeded. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. 